can turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5 is our next scripture reading this morning, which is where the sermon will be taken from in just a few minutes. Mark chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 21 and read to the end of the chapter. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and, seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him. And a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher any more? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him, except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded, and he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said that something should be given her to eat. There is an old adage that I trust you have all found to be a reality. Desperate times call for desperate measures. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Our desperate need, spiritually, 
calls for desperate reliance on Jesus for our sufficiency. Desperation does not necessitate hopelessness. The two are not the same. We can be incredibly desperate and yet hopeful. And we're going to see that in the text this morning. When we think about our needs before Christ, what we need from God in Christ, desperation is absolutely required. And hopelessness hinders us. So while desperation is required, hopelessness is hindering to us. It, it hampers us making any real progress of actually coming through, following through with the desperate measures that are necessitated by the desperate times. When we get to this middle point of Mark chapter 5, Jesus is leaving a trail of transformation behind him. He is teaching with authority in ways that people have not heard of, heard people have not heard of before. He is healing the lame and the sick. He is calming winds and settling seas. He's taming demons. He's leaving a trail of transformation everywhere he goes. He had settled, he has settled the wind that no one had previously harnessed, and no one has harnessed since. Jesus has calmed the sea that no one could steady. He has absolute power over nature. Jesus has cast out legion that no one could control. He has absolute power over the demonic realm. And now as we come to Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, we have Jesus healing a woman that no physician could cure. He has power over disease. And he restores life to a little girl that is beyond all hope. He has power over death. Infinite power and intimate pity. The title, as you see there in the bulletin, Pity and Power. Intimate pity from our Lord towards those who are needy. Not just the little girl and the lady in our passage, but towards us. Intimate compassion and pity given our state and our need, our desperate situation and infinite power to accomplish all that is necessary. As we look at, these, at this text, these two different stories, really it's one story. There's just a story sandwiched in the middle. Mark has a habit of writing in this sandwiched format, and we see it evidenced here in the second half of Mark chapter 5. So three points that we'll walk through together. The miracle is introduced, 21 through 23. The miracle is interrupted, 24 through 34. And the miracle is insisted, 35 through 43. So Jesus hears about the need. He sets off. That's the introduction to the story. He's interrupted on the way by this woman who also has a need. He accomplishes the miracle for her, continues on his way, insisting on doing the miracle that he committed to from the outset. I suppose that's the gist of it, and we could go home now. But I'll try to spend 40 more minutes saying that over and over. 
Jesus has been gone a day, a single day. He made his way across the Sea of Galilee to save a single soul. Remember last week? After a long Sabbath day of teaching, he sets out across the Sea of Galilee. They, They face the storms, the wind and the waves, which he calms down, teaching and his disciples, discipling them, if you will, to trust him and to not be fearful. He gets there. He's there primarily, initially, for the sake of this one man who meets him on the shore, who is full of demonic activity. They ask Jesus to leave. The townspeople do. The man who had been possessed by a demon desires to go with Jesus. Jesus leaves him behind as a missionary for these This town, the surrounding towns, Mark tells us in verse 20 that he went on and began proclaiming in all ten cities throughout that region. When Jesus gets back, there there is no rest. He is met with a massive crowd upon his return. When Jesus had crossed over again, verse 21, in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. He left a day before and it's like everybody had come to camp out on the beach waiting for him to get back. Whether it's curiosity, whether they wanted to hear from him... Whether they needed to be healed by him, probably the group is made up of all types of people coming for all kinds of reasons. I think it's interesting to note that the townspeople of Gerasim, on the one hand, said, please go away. Yet when Jesus lands on the other side, we have people welcoming him. Come on off, we want to hear from you. But especially this one man named Jairus one of the synagogue officials who was more than likely the primary synagogue official. He would have been the man who was responsible for leading the worship Sabbath after Sabbath. He was in charge of leading the worship of God for the Jews and the Israelites. He would have been a man of some nobility. And here he is coming in the midst of the crowd After an entire region, the entire district, say to Jesus, please go away. He comes to Jesus and says, please come. I need you. I am desperate, so I must come. The miracle is introduced there in the first three verses. It's quite likely because of Jairus' position in the synagogue, he had witnessed a miracle happening before. If he hadn't witnessed it, he had no doubt heard about it, Jesus. He had heard what Jesus had done, and so he comes with some measure of hope, which is encouraging, because even having seen the power of Jesus displayed, Even when we have experienced the power of Jesus in our own lives, we are prone to think that the grace of God or the power of Christ is reserved for others, but isn't available for us in the same way. But Jairus casts all his dignity aside, and he comes to Jesus for help. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Jesus responds to Jairus' faith. Verse 23, Jairus implored Jesus 
earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that you will get well and live. And look, Jesus asked no more questions. Verse 24, and he went off with him. That's it. He went off with him. And a large crowd was following him, and the large crowd was pressing in on him. And this pressing in has the idea in the original language that even their breathing was affected, squeezing the air from them. It is a tight crowd making the way from the shoreline to Jairus' house. Lots of people are there. Lots of people following Jesus. And Jesus is committed to going with Jairus in order to help his daughter. And then verse 25 happens. This interruption of the miracle that is on the horizon. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years. If you remember from the reading towards the end of the passage, you remember how old the little girl is? Twelve years. There's a contrast set up for our benefit. This Jairus' family, twelve years of joy. Twelve years of anticipation of life. What will she become? Who will she marry? How many kids will she have? Contrasted with twelve years of misery and hopelessness in this lady with a hemorrhage. The bleeding that she was experiencing, the discharge of blood, has resulted in her being discharged from society. She is practically a leper. The ceremonial laws were quite similar for those who had leprosy and those who had discharge of blood. She is ceremonially unclean, according to Leviticus 15, verse 25 and following. If a woman has a discharge of her blood, she's unclean. Everything on which she sits shall be unclean. Everything around her, if anyone touches her, they are unclean. This, this woman, for 12 years, has been excluded from all social relations. When, when Luke writes about this, who is a physician, he describes her condition in this way. She could not be healed by anyone. It's an incurable disease that she's experiencing. As a result of that, she has been banished from the presence of God, from the temple. She cannot come there to worship. She has, is an outcast from the people of God because if they associate, associate with her, then they are not allowed to come and worship God. She has been ostracized from all normalcy of life. She has been barred from worship of God. She is living a life that is marked by social embarrassment. She is physically debilitated, weak and sick due to the constant loss of blood. She has been financially impoverished. She has spent everything that she had trying to get better. She is religiously unclean. She is, from a familial standpoint, hopeless. She, she cannot get married. She cannot bear children. Desperate times call for desperate measures. This woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years, verse 26, Mark tells us more. She had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. She had endured much. 
She was suffering. She had suffered much. This is actually the same word used of Jesus going to the cross and suffering, which is really remarkable because here we see Jesus taking on her suffering in the same way that he has taken on the suffering that we deserve. She is suffering physically. She is suffering socially. She is suffering psychologically. She is suffering spiritually. She had, Mark tells us in verse 26, endured much. And she had gone to many physicians, not one here or there. What did the physicians do? They made her condition worse. How miserable. Imagine time after time thinking, maybe this time I'll get some help. Only to be let down again. For 12 years. Month after month. Year after year. Only getting worse. Deteriorating. Whether she was going to witch doctors or medical doctors, she has endured much at their hands and more than likely in that context, she had tried everything. She had gone to the real doctor and she used essential oils. (laughs) And neither were helpful. She was not only not improving, but getting worse as a result. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And then, verse 27, after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. Hope diminished. And hope deferred makes the heart sick. It's hard to imagine on that day how she mustered enough hope, enough courage to fight through the crowd that was so tight that people had difficulty breathing. It's difficult to imagine that she has any hope left. It seems almost impossible that she would have any measure of faith remaining. But faith comes by hearing. Look at verse 27 again. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. She sneaks up from behind, attempts to slink back into anonymity and oblivion after touching his cloak. She's in violation of the Old Testament laws simply by being in the crowd, much less touching the hem of Jesus' garment. Desperate times call for desperate measures. After hearing about Jesus, she thought, said to herself, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Imagine that. Twelve years and she, hasn't, she hadn't just plateaued health-wise in 12 years. She had gotten worse. Everybody that she had gone to had made things worse. And yet, she heard about Jesus, and faith is instilled. Faith comes through hearing. She heard about this man. It doesn't even say that she had witnessed any of the miracles or that she knew anybody that had witnessed it. But on this day, 
having heard about Jesus, she wakes up with enough faith to meander through the crowd, to reach down below everyone and slip her hands in and touch the corner, the edge of the cloak of his garment. If I just touch his garment. She wisely did not listen to the voices throughout society. She wisely did not listen to the voices in her own mind and heart. She wisely reminded herself of the truth that she had heard. If I just touch his garments, I'll get well. Faith comes by hearing. Imagine all of the possible doubts that would be creeping into her heart and to her mind. Medical professionals have failed for 12 years. What is this teacher going to accomplish? You're an outcast. No one cares. God doesn't care. He's banished you from worship. People like you aren't allowed to come in and worship. Your family has forgotten about you. There's no hope of future family. All of the possible doubts that she would have been dealing with within. Yet, she, after hearing about Jesus, she came up and touched him. Because desperate times call for desperate measures. And look at what happens. Immediately, she's cured. The flow of her blood was dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Not just immediately cured of the symptoms, but cured of the source. She is healed. She feels well. She hasn't felt well in 12 years. And she feels strong again. Not just the bleeding stopped, but her strength is regained. There's a transaction that has taken place when she slips her hand through around the ankles of the crowd in order to touch the hem of his garment. She is immediately cured because of the transaction. She felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Something came in and something went out. But not just within her. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up. And verse 30, immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him, had gone forth. There was power going out of Christ, which was producing health into this woman. There's noticeable change in both of them. There's evident alteration in both of them. Infinite power from Jesus guarantees that though power proceeded from him, the power bank, we might say, the source was not depleted at all. So it it might be better for us to understand that power went through him. Her faith was in God. And power went through Christ. He was the distributor, the conduit. As God himself, he was the source of that power. But being infinite, he lost no power. But he perceived that the power was proceeding from him. And she was a recipient of that remarkable power. Jesus said, who touched me? Now, remember the context. Remember where they're headed. Jairus has come and said, my daughter is dying. Please come. They were expecting her death at any moment. So much so that by the time they get there and she has died, they have the hired mourners present already. It's like they were on speed dial waiting to come whenever she passed away. 
There wasn't much time. Every second matters. And yet here Jesus is asking, within the larger context of the crowd walking towards Jairus' house, who touched him? Who touched my garments? Evidently, for Jesus, there's a difference between the shoulders of curiosity with the crowd and the fingers of faith from this lady. He knew something had happened. And so he asked the question, who touched my garments? Now, he's not responding with the same level of curiosity that the crowd has. He actually expects a full-orbed expression of faith. And so he asks, he doesn't, it, it can't stop there. Private faith isn't real faith. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This woman, at this point, definitely believed in her heart. It was her faith that had made her well. But Jesus stops to bring her forward to allow her to confess with her mouth. Psalm 50, verse 15 says as well, call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. When blessings fall from heaven, thanksgivings should be returned. Jesus is taking the time to reveal to this woman, to the crowd, and to us as we read it and consider it here this morning, that when he accomplishes a work of grace in the life of an individual, that person responds with a grateful heart, with a changed life, with altered choices. And so Jesus says, Who touched my garments? The woman, fearing and trembling, verse 33, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Here's what happened. Here is her confessing with her mouth. Here she is honoring him. She called upon him in the day of trouble. He rescued her, and she responds with honor. Daughter, he said, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Your faith has made you well. You you are saved permanently. You be healed of your affliction. You are healed physically. Twofold. Faith had this twofold effect in her life. Her sins were forgiven and her affliction was alleviated. And he says to her, go in peace. She's not known a moment of peace for 12 years. She's lived in this misery. And he says, go in peace. Be whole. Experience well-being. Live in prosperity. No security. Enjoy friendship. Revel in salvation. Go in peace. Jesus is touched by uncleanness, but untainted by it. When when this unclean woman reaches out and touches the hem of his garment, he absorbs the uncleanness and overcomes the uncleanness. He who is pure purges the impurity from this woman based on her faith. How can he do it? The ceremonial law is so clear. He can do it because the needs of people are a higher priority for Jesus than ceremonial observances. 
He's committed to the right things, the better things, the greater things. And he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Daughter, go in peace. Daughter, be healed of your affliction. She had spent years, a dozen years as an outcast. Barred from God. Separated from God's people. And he says, daughter. He responds to her with tender intimacy and compassion and love and care and kindness. Something that is foreign to her. Now, again, remember the context. They're on the way to Jairus' house, whose daughter is on her deathbed. Jairus surely must be thinking at this point, what about my daughter? She's dying. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed, verse 34. And then verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, while Jesus was still saying, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Daughter, go in peace. Daughter, be healed of your affliction. They came from Jairus' house saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Jesus insists on accomplishing the miracle he set out to do. But at this point of the story, surely we're thinking, oh no, what now? Why did Jesus not prioritize better? I mean, this woman's been sick for 12 years. What's a couple more days? Right? Make an appointment, catch up with her tomorrow. This little girl's on her deathbed. Is she not more important with so much more life to live? Jesus, overhearing what these messengers of despair were saying, said to Jairus, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. Basically, Jesus says, I'm going to ignore what they're saying, and so should you. Don't listen to them. They are making you fearful. They are making you prone to faithlessness. And here we see, as we've seen in the previous text, this concept of fear and faith showing up again. Fear versus faith. It shows up again and again and again. But here's Jesus saying, do not listen to the world and their assessment of things. Listen to the truth of the word of God. Jairus, you believed moments ago. You've just watched a miracle happen before your eyes. Do not lose faith now. Only believe. Don't be fearful. Jesus encouraging Jairus continued on. Making the rest of the crowd now stay back. Taking Peter, James, and John and going to the house. Verse 38, they came to Jairus' house. There's a commotion there. There are people weeping and wailing. I mentioned already, it was very common in that culture to hire professional mourners to come and wail and weep. So there's a commotion. It's a hired commotion. And the mourning turns into mocking. 
When Jesus says, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died but is asleep. They began laughing at him. Why were they laughing? We know for sure that they were hired to mourn because they don't care that the little girl's dead if they're able to laugh. But they're mocking, laughing, because Jesus is suggesting that she's merely asleep. They're professional mourners. They see dead people daily. They know that the little girl is actually dead. And Jesus is not arguing with that. He's not saying, no, she's not dead. She's actually asleep. The point Jesus was making is, I'm going to raise her as if she's asleep. I'm going to raise her from the dead just as simply as I would wake her from an afternoon nap. And he does, verse 41, taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, little girl, I say to you, get up. Again, we have Jesus being infected, if you will, by the ceremonial uncleanness of the woman reaching out and touching the cloak of his garment. Now taking a corpse by the hand, forbidden by the law, but in Christ, love supersedes the letter of the law. And this intimate pity of Jesus is revealed as he takes this little girl by the hand and his power is displayed when he says, little girl, I say to you, get up. It's remarkable here that Jesus didn't utter some mysterious mumbo-jumbo. He simply, tenderly, intimately says, Talitha kum, little girl. Or from an etymological standpoint, literally, little lamb, arise. And Peter, James, and John, who would have been somewhat acquainted with the prophet Isaiah by this time, surely could hear that wonderful combination in Isaiah chapter 40, of pity and power belonging to the Lord. Listen to Isaiah 40. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense is before him. Infinite power belongs to him. In the very next verse, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs, carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. And here, this window into the compassion and pity of Christ and his infinite power is opened up for us in one verse. Mark 5, 41, taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately she got up. She didn't even shake the cobwebs off. Mark says she began to walk around. She was 12. And they were completely astounded. That is, they were astonished with great astonishment. Oh, that we would be less astonished and more grateful. They didn't expect it. Their faith was small. And Christ accomplishes this in order to encourage and bolster their faith. And Jesus gave them strict orders that they tell no one. And that they should give her something to eat. 
for a couple different reasons. One, it points out she was really alive. And two, she had been sick for a while. They were anticipating her death. How long has it been since she's eaten? She needs food for strength. But she's walking around already. She's not just brought back to life with a faint heartbeat and slow, faint breaths, but to full health. She's immediately up and walking around. But the parents are sworn to secrecy, which is the exact opposite of this woman who had reached out to be healed. Jesus, in that setting, didn't just pretend everything was okay. He didn't say, I felt that. Don't tell anyone what happened. But he encouraged her to come forward because private faith is faithless fear. But with regard to the parents and him raising the little girl from the dead, in some measure, he has to control the crowd. His time had not yet come. His mission was not finished. It was not final. These two recipients, this little girl and this woman, two recipients of Jesus' pity, both recipients of his power, they are at opposite ends of the spectrum. Socially, opposite ends. Economically, opposite ends. Religiously, opposite ends. But you know what? At the foot of the cross, all humanity is leveled. The rich, the poor, the embryo and the aged, the sick and the well. This woman has no name, no hope of family. The girl is the daughter of the leader of the synagogue. They're so drastically different. In every area, they're complete opposites. Jesus does not reserve pity for only some. Jesus does not show his power only to some. His intimate pity and his infinite power are freely available to all. The lowly and the lofty. His pity and his power are for us all. His power is unfathomed. His pity is unmeasured. The woman who is all alone in life and the young girl along with her loving family, they are now united together in their desperation for help from Jesus. They both come to Jesus. They were also together as recipients of grace, of his pity and of his power. Despair that they experienced is the prelude to grace. Despair for us is often the prelude to grace, which begs the question for us all, how desperate are we? Because desperate times call for desperate measures. And whatever the desperation is that you're experiencing, that you're feeling, that you're facing, coming in con- into contact with Jesus is the solution. Look back at verse 23. Jairus says, please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And verse 28, the woman says, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. 
They were desperate. They knew there's no hope outside of this man. I've got to get to him. I've got to get close to him. For the little girl, for the woman, sickness and death was a reality. And it's a reality for all of us. Death, whether you realize it or not, is quite certain. In fact, 94% of everyone who has ever been born has died. And of that remaining 6%, there is 100% certainty that they too will die. And that includes every one of us. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men to die. And after this comes the judgment. God has decreed it already. Death is no respecter of persons, not at all. Death makes no distinctions. All types, every type of person dies. Social status offers no immunity. So-called societal privilege provides no protection. Death is sure. It is certain. But for the Christian, for the one who has faith in Jesus, death is a defeated enemy. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Which is why Jesus can say, your faith has made you well. Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. Which is the call of Christ to every one of us this morning to put our faith in Jesus. It can be an imperfect faith. Imperfect faith in Christ still saves. Uninformed faith in Christ saves. Immature faith in Jesus saves. If you now are are sensing the stirrings of faith in your heart, appropriate that faith. Exercise that faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Stirring up the faith within you to believe what God has said, that it's true about you, that apart from him, you're hell bound. He will not unnoticed. It will not go unnoticed by him when you trust in him. You may have been feeling this uneasiness within for some time, and you may be like the woman going here and there and looking for relief for a guilty conscience. And it's only getting worse. You may be doing this and doing that, trying to earn your righteousness before him, and it's of no hope. Avoid the rush and give up early. You may be avoiding this or avoiding that, trying to clean yourself up for God. You can't do that. You know what you can do? Repent of your sins and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Trust in his pity and believe in his power. He stands ready to save. He's full of pity, compassion, and kindness. And he has power stored up to rescue every single one that comes to him by faith. And for all who have come to him by faith, trusting in him alone for the forgiveness of their sins, He has commanded us in his word to come together, acknowledging the sacrifice that he's made, 
remembering what he's done for us and looking forward to his return again one day. So as we come to the Lord's Supper and observe the supper that he commanded us to until the end of time, we're coming and identifying with him. As we come to the table today, we are identifying with Jesus Christ We are one with him. We are united to him by faith. There's no other way to be united to him than by faith. The kind of faith that Jairus showed. The kind of faith that the woman with the issue of blood reveals here in Mark chapter 5. Do you believe? If you believe and if it has had an effect on your life. And you are identified not only with Christ but with Christ's people as the church then the bread and the cup are here for you. As we come identifying with Christ and with one another, we're making a proclamation. It's as if we're preaching a sermon alongside a sermon. It's a visible sermon that each of us as individuals are proclaiming that Christ has died and his death is the life of man's soul. We are putting his body and his blood, as it were, into our lives, saying that we have died with him, and as a result, we live with him. The two elements, the bread and the cup, preach Christ crucified. This is my body, Jesus said. This represents my body and this cup. It is the new covenant of my blood. But we are warned as well with regard to our observance of the Lord's Supper, that we ought to be careful and cautious with regard to how we partake. We should be sure that we're right with God, that we have a clean conscience before Him, and that we're right with God's people, living in harmony with them, seeking to be at peace with all men. So as we come to the table in just a few moments... The bread and the cup are available for all believers. If you have repented of your sin and you are trusting only in Jesus Christ for your salvation, then please do come and take and eat and drink here at the table. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and after I pray, Megan will come and play, and as she plays, we'll come down the middle aisles and just come to any tray that's available to eat and drink, and then we'll return around um, the outside, and after everyone's had a chance to take, we'll stand and and sing um, once again. Let's pray. God, we thank you that though you are unimaginably great and holy and pure that you have stooped down and condescended in the person of your son and being made like us he lived and died a life that we could never live or die and he did so in order that we might be known by you God we thank you for the gospel and for the knowledge of sins forgiven God, we thank you that you had compassion and pity on us when we were in our sin. 
and that you displayed your remarkable power by changing our hearts from stone to flesh, from dead to alive. God, we pray that you'll continue displaying your pity and power, that you'll save some even now through the gospel of your grace, that you'll rescue boys and girls and men and women from their sin, and you'll save them to yourself. God, as we come, we do proclaim, remembering the death that you died for us, and we look forward to that glorious return when you come and consummate your kingdom where we have the privilege then of enjoying you apart from sin forever and ever. Hear us and help us to worship you now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.